We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Labor Day is here Finally, and that means for many of us, football season is here. I hope you're enjoying your Labor Day. Yeah, the first or most of the first weekend of college football, first full weekend of college football in the books. One more game tonight, Clemson and Georgia Tech. What a wild game last night between LSU and Florida State. More on that coming up uh, later on in the show. But yeah, we are now into the rhythm of fall, uh, which includes for so many of us, the rhythm of football season. You know, for a lot of you, high school football on Friday night, college football Saturday, the NFL on Sundays and Monday nights and Thursday nights. And, you know, it's it's hot here early in the season. And before we know it, the pumpkins are, are out and we've got a crisp, cool autumn, you know, October into like colder weather and holiday time. There's nothing better than this stretch of the next four plus months. It's the best. Uh, And it all kicks off in the NFL on Thursday night with the Bills and the Rams. Yeah, the Bills and the Rams. What an opener. The defending champion Rams, Matt Stafford, apparently fine and well. And the Buffalo Bills, who have become, over the summer, the clear-cut consensus favorite to win the Super Bowl. You pretty much cannot find anybody that is even a co-favorite at this point. Buffalo is pretty much over the summer, and part of it was they looked really good in the preseason. I don't think the preseason means much, but in a game against Denver in the preseason a few weeks ago, Buffalo scored 42 points. They scored six touchdowns on their first six possessions. Like their four possessions in the first half – all ended in touchdown, and then their first two possessions of the second half all ended in touchdown. I mean, that's pretty damn impressive. Didn't they do that in the playoff game last year um, against the Patriots? Didn't they score like seven touchdowns on seven possessions? I'm looking that up right now. I think I'm right about that. Um, It was a 47-17 to final. They went touchdown, 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 touchdown in the first half. Touchdown, 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 end of game in the second half. So seven touchdowns on seven possessions. So they must have missed a couple of extra points 
Um, the last possession was three kneel downs to end the game. Buffalo at my bookie right now is plus 580 to win the Super Bowl. They are the favorite. The Buccaneers are the second pick at plus 720. And the Chiefs are at plus 980 as the third favorite. So Buffalo being roughly 6-1 to one and Kansas City being roughly 10-1, to one, Buffalo is a prohibitive favorite to win the AFC championship game and advance to the Super Bowl. And certainly the last time we saw them in that epic playoff game against the Chiefs, 42-36 to 36 in overtime with the incredible Josh Allen performance, a game that you know we thought they had won, a game that changed the overtime rule for the playoffs this upcoming season because they never got a possession. Uh, the Chiefs went down and scored a touchdown on their opening possession. Now both teams guaranteed a possession in, in the playoffs. Um, in overtime, but the Bills um, really have pretty much across the board become the Super Bowl favorite, and we'll get our first chance to see them in what is a you know big time hell of a first game matchup. We don't always get that. They try to give you a, a really attractive matchup. I can remember a couple of years, you know, like the uh, the Eagles played the Falcons on a Thursday night game. Uh, the, the Steelers one year played the Titans. In a Thursday night game, there there have been some that haven't been great, um, but Rams with a healthy Matt, uh, Matt Stafford apparently now he's well ready to go against Buffalo. Buffalo's a two and a half point favorite at my bookie. My bookie, by the way, is our show sponsor today. Um, you can get your winning season off to a good start by going to my bookie and using my promo code for their double deposit bonus. It's quick, it's easy. You deposit 250 bucks into your account. They'll add another 250, so you will have 500 in your account to use to bet instantly on as many games and prop bets as you want. Uh, to claim that double deposit bonus, you have to use my promo code KevinDC. Uh, that will add um, again a doubling of your funds in your account. Use Kevin DC as your promo code. Sometimes when you go to sign up at my bookie, there's something already in the promo code section. Just erase it and write Kevin DC, um, and you'll be able to start betting instantly with the doubling of your account size. Uh, your winning season begins today exclusively at my bookie. Yeah, uh, we are leading up this week um, to the beginning of the NFL season. And today's show has a theme to it. It is going to be our best case, worst case show. And that is, of course, I say of course, maybe not of course to all of you, but that is a best case, worst case on the commander's record in 2022. Ben Standig will be on the show. We'll talk a lot of commanders and then he'll give us his best case, worst case. And then Tim Murray is going to be on the show. Tim and I will talk a lot of college football and then Tim will give us his commander's best case, worst case. Uh, I'll give you mine as well coming up here in just a couple of minutes. Um, I did want to mention a couple of things to start. Ryan Kerrigan named assistant defensive line coach today by the team. That came out of the practice uh, this morning uh, and Ron Rivera's comments. Good for Ryan Kerrigan starting his uh, you know, post-NFL career as a coach, um, and he'll be a great addition. He was highly respected when he was on this team with the young players like Montez Sweat and John Allen and Chase Young even for uh, one season. Um, but they officially today announced that Ryan Kerrigan is an assistant defensive line coach for the Commanders. Uh, good for him. Um, so 
Uh, I wanted to get to a couple of things before I get to my best case, worst case. I, I want to start with my excitement over Maryland football uh, over the summer and then last week in particular. I am excited about the Terps, and they got off to a winning start to the season, beating Buffalo on Saturday 31-10. to It was not impressive overall, but I'm not really hung up on that because if you saw some of the teams expected to be really great on offense, some of them performed and even overperformed, and others sputtered a little bit. And I thought uh, Maryland on Saturday sputtered a little bit offensively uh, in their 31-10 win. I mean, look, it's a 21-point win. They were never going to lose this game against that team. Um, but I was kind of expecting, you know, a 40-50 to 50 point output. Uh, you know, uh, Loxley opened up his first season here with 79 against Howard and 63 against Syracuse back in 2019. Uh, and last year they put up 500 plus yards in an opening season, uh, win over West Virginia. But, um, they, they sputtered a little bit. Leah looked a little bit off with his accuracy. They struggled with pass pr- uh, protection. Uh, but they had some explosive plays, especially from Roman Hemby, their running back. He had a 33-yard touchdown run uh, on their first drive. He had a 70-yard touchdown run to open up the third quarter. And Maryland got what they needed, which was a win. Um, it's funny because a lot of my Maryland fans said, ugh, they didn't look good. And they didn't look like what we thought they would look like. I thought pass pro was an issue. I thought they couldn't they, – they struggled again with penalties, which have been a common theme to the Loxley um, era here. Uh, they've been a highly penalized team, and they were again the other day. Um, but uh, they'll have two more chances to get on track offensively before going to Michigan to start conference play. Um, in their fourth game of the year later on uh, this month. They have Charlotte this coming week. Uh, Then they have a a game, a a bigger test, and a real test against SMU on the 17th, uh, a night nationally televised game on FS1. Uh, But I'm I'm still, for those of you wondering, I'm still optimistic that Mike Loxley has his best team here and that they can win seven regular season games. I wanted to make... um, a couple of comments quickly about the game. Number one, Buffalo had the ball at the end of the first half at the 41-yard line, their own 41-yard line, after after they stopped Maryland on a fourth down. And with 20 seconds to go from their own 41-yard line in a game that was 17-7, to they took a knee. I, I, I just made a note to myself, why would you ever do that? You're one throw, one decent-sized throw, two to three throws away from field goal range. They had timeouts, too. I, I don't... Why do you, whoever takes a knee at the 41 yard line with 20 seconds to go in the half? Um, also, there were a couple of performances that stood out. Maryland's got some NFL players on their roster. We've talked about their receivers. Uh, they've got an offensive lineman who is in a, an NFL potential first, you know, rounder, second rounder. But Jacorian Bennett, their, their def, uh, pass defender, their corner, Man, he looks like an NFL player to me. He's he again. I don't know anything about Buffalo, and they're not supposed to be good. Um, but his performance really stood out uh, to me. Um, for you Terp fans that care about this part of the conversation, the last comment I'll make is: it was a terrible crowd. It was hot. It was Buffalo. They had a much better crowd last year for West Virginia, and yeah, there were a lot of West Virginia fans in the crowd. Um, Every time I see some of those shots of College Park during games in recent years, 
And then I saw some of the shots of, of an empty stadium in the second half going around on Twitter on Saturday. The only, th- the only thing I can think of is, wow, Mike Loxley is one hell of a recruiter. I mean, he continues to recruit big-time talent out of the DMV. And Maryland does not have the environment at home that a lot of other places have. Teams they're recruiting. He's out recruiting uh, for players, uh, schools that were sold out and standing room only for for lesser opponents than Buffalo on Saturday. I, it'll improve, you know, if they're good. And there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, um, but, you know, Ralph Friedgen filled up that place for many of those years when they had really good teams under him. And I know Mike remembers those years, and I'm hoping for the same. I've said this a million times. Maryland is one of those you know schools that is basketball first. There are many more football first schools than basketball first schools, and it's never going to change. Maryland's always going to be a basketball first school in terms of the student, uh, the students, and certainly the alums. Um, that's important, and that's the most important. But I'd love to see Mike Loxley have a big time year um, because I think he's got the talent. And uh, you know, the quarterback was a little bit erratic uh, from an accuracy standpoint. Leah Tungavailoa in his opener, um, but I expect them to to, to get better. Um, okay. All of that said. Let's get to best case, worst case day. Ben Standick coming up, uh, Tim Murray coming up. This is my best case commander's record, my worst case commander's record, and reasons why. It's the ceiling and the floor as far as I'm concerned for the upcoming season. I'm going to give you the floor first. I'm going to give you the worst case, uh, worst case uh, record first. I think the worst case is 7-10. and 10. I don't see their floor being much lower than 7 wins. Now, some of you will probably debate me on that and, and argue, come on, Sheehan, of course it could completely implode. It, it's happened many times with this organization, and their floor really is something like four wins or five wins or three wins. But here's why I say seven is the floor. You know, Ron Rivera's never had a team implode. He's never had a truly terrible season. His first season in Carolina, he was 6-10. and 10. His uh, Super Bowl uh, season, the season after, excuse me, the Super Bowl, they were six and ten. Cam Newton was injured for a big portion of that year. He was seven and nine here, seven and ten last year. He's never had a team quit on him. His teams have always gotten better. They've played their best football at the end of the year. We've talked about that a lot. I, I just don't see a Ron Rivera team quitting on him, and you know. You factor that with, and you know I'm not much of a schedule guy, but you factor that with Washington has Jacksonville, Detroit, Houston, and Atlanta, and the Giants twice on their schedule. These are the teams that are predicted to be the worst teams in the league. Now, it's a schedule thing. I don't really buy into that a whole lot. Uh, Things change dramatically, and for all we know, Jacksonville and Detroit could have huge turnaround seasons, and they don't play Houston and Atlanta until late November. They don't play the Giants until December. So who the hell knows what these teams are going to be like? I hate playing that game, typically. They also have Chicago on the schedule, not supposed to be a good team. I just don't really think they can win less than seven. I'd be surprised if they don't win at least seven games. 
And by the way, if seven is your floor, like seven, depending on when you win the seven, you know, if you end the season with a four-game winning streak, well, you know, you were never in contention. But if you can get to six sometime in November, you're in contention, you know, in what is perceived to be a weak NFC. I think the floor is seven wins. Rivera's never had a team implode. Um, I would say to you that this team on paper doesn't stink. It certainly doesn't stink. It's not great either. Um, that's probably another reason that I don't think their floor is super low is I just don't think this is a, a, a bad roster. Again, I don't think it's a great roster, but it's far from a bad roster. It's far from the worst roster um, in the NFC. I, I see seven as the floor. Seven and ten, worst case. Ben Standig is going to be on this show. He also had me on his show um, today. And he asked me a question. He said, what's your vibe about the season? Like, do you have a vibe on the team? My vibe is what it typically is uh, and what I would say it is 75% of the time. And that is, I don't really have a vibe. The vibe is, who the hell knows? And I say that because every year in the NFL, you know, there are four or five teams that you're pretty damn sure are going to be good because they've got the quarterback. Um, there are two, three teams that you're pretty convinced are going to stink. And the other, you know, 23, 24, 25 teams are, you know, I used to use the example, they're somewhere between 6 and 10 if everything goes wrong, 10 and 6 if everything goes right. And now it's, you know, probably more like 7 and 10 and 10 and 7. And I think they're in that mix of teams. You know, they're not one of the worst teams in the league. They're clearly not one of the best teams in the league going in. They're part of that big blob of NFL teams where if you stay healthy and your quarterback plays well and you get a couple of breaks, you can be in the playoffs. And if you don't, then you can be completely out of it and not have a great record. I think that's where they are. That's my vibe on them. That's my vibe on 22 to 25 NFL teams every single year. And that's really where they've always been. I guess there have been a couple of seasons when we thought that they were among the worst teams. There's never been a season since I've been doing this as a career where they've been one of the teams you expected to have a big-time season. You know, again, we've mentioned this many times. It's been since 2000, so 22 years since the last time there were any Super Bowl or NFC Championship type of expectations attached to this team. 2000 was off of their... 1999 division winning season, a playoff win, uh, a, a, a near second playoff win at Tampa. Um, and, you know, they had that team coming back, and then they had that incredible offseason where they signed every big fantasy football guy, Dion and Carrier and Bruce Smith, et cetera, Jeff George. Um, so, they've, you know, it, it's the vibe is I'm not sure, but I do think the floor is seven. Now, I have said all along, I could see this team winning 10 games. But for uh, today, as we've gotten closer to the regular season, I'm going to say that the ceiling, or the best case, is 9-8. and eight. I, Could I see 10? I don't think I can see 10. I mean, I'm close to saying 10 as the best case, but I'm going to say 9. Because realistically, what we've had from Ron Rivera here, seven wins, seven wins, you know, his teams don't implode, but they haven't been real good either. I'm not a fan of Wentz, as you know. I'm not a fan of the trade, even though I think they got better and I think they should be better on offense. But I have big questions about them defensively. 
It's so odd, but this is part of kind of the, you know, 22, 23, 24 teams could go either way. When you don't have the elite quarterback, the conversation about you every year changes. A year ago, we were saying, great defense. Let's just hope the offense gets better. But this defense, I mean, it could be the 85 Bears. I didn't think so, but I certainly thought it could be a really good defense, even if it wasn't reflected statistically as compared to 2020 because of the quarterbacks they were facing. Herbert and Allen and Rodgers and Mahomes and Brady and Wilson, and the list went on and on and on last year. And let's keep in mind that they they did not invest heavily into their defense either. They essentially are doubling down on the players they have and have actually netted out less talent after losing Settle and Ioannidis. You know, they, they essentially have said, we believe in what we have here. We believe in Jamin Davis in year two. We believe in Cole Holcomb. We believe in not many linebackers, but we believe in our D-line, and Chase is going to be healthy, and Montez is going to bounce back, and Deron Payne and John Allen are going to be – Allen's going to be great, and Payne's in a contract year. We just we, we just didn't have enough – we had communication issues in our secondary. Remember, that was the Jack Del Rio line. Um, but we just faced murderer's row in terms of quarterbacks and offenses. We don't face that this year. So they've doubled down on that. But I – I'm not confident in the defense, and I I still am a Deron Payne fan. I'm a Montez Sweat fan. I'm a huge John Allen fan. I'm a Chase Young fan, and hopefully he's back. I personally think their back seven is still a huge question mark. And I think this year, whereas last year the issue was stopping quarterbacks and dynamic offensive weapons at, at wide receiver – and tight end, this year you're facing a litany, a long list of teams that are excellent rush offensive football teams. Last year they finished, I think, seventh, was it, DVOA against the rush? A bit misleading. They didn't face a lot of teams that really were run-first teams. This year they do. This year they got Philadelphia twice in their division. Uh, They've got Tennessee. They've got Indy. They've got uh, San Francisco and Cleveland later on in the year. Uh, They've got Atlanta now with a dual-threat quarterback. They've got Minnesota with Dalvin Cook if he's healthy. Um, Yeah, they're going to have to stop the run this year. I'm not so confident. I'm confident in the front four. I'm not confident in what's behind it. Offensively, the bottom line is I think they should be better, and I'll be disappointed if they're not better, but I still – even though Wentz's ceiling is higher than anything they've had since Kirk Cousins, I'm still skeptical about what Wentz is going to be. I believe in Scott Turner. I believe in some of the weapons. Um, but I don't know. I think the Brian Robinson um, you know, issue from the shooting uh, and how long he's out is kind of a big deal, even though I'm a big fan of Antonio Gibson. I think they're going to use Jonathan Williams as their starting running back. I like their weapons. I'm still not sold on the QB. And last year, with really a better overall team in Indy than Washington has, the Colts went 9-8. and eight. And by the way, an excellent coaching staff. An excellent organization, in fact. In a bad division, too, last year. And they went 9-8. and eight. And so I'm going, best case, 9-8. and eight. Worst case, 7-10. and I think the floor is fairly high. I think the ceiling is fairly low. 
But, you know, if they reach that 9-8, and 8-9 eight, eight and area, they're hopefully in contention. And with this organization really year in and year out, the best you can really hope for, I mean, like logically hope for, is that you get to December 1st and when they, you know, put up the uh, playoff scenarios as a full screen Chiron on Fox and they've got the division leaders and they, they've got the current wild card teams as the six, uh, as the five, six, and seven seed. And then, you know, outside looking in, that Washington's one of those teams that's really close to the five, six, seven seed. That they're, you know, six and six or they're six and seven, but they're only a game out from the team who's in the seventh spot at seven and six. That's really and truly, you know, if you're hoping for contention and hoping for a postseason game, year in and year out with this organization, that's kind of what you can sort of realistically hope happens. Uh, nine and two starts, you know, seven and one starts, six and two starts don't happen. You know, they don't enter the month of November as the hottest team in the NFL with the second best record in the NFL. We haven't had a great start to a season really since 1996 uh, when they started off 7-1, and one, finished 8-8, eight and eight, missed the playoffs. Uh, that was the final year at RFK. I mean, the 6-3-1 and one start in 2016 was, was exciting. They were really good offensively. They were limited defensively. And they ended up going, as we know, 8-7-1, and, and they missed the postseason. I think, you know, what you hope for is you get to December and you're six and six, seven and six, six and seven, and you're in contention. And I can see that with this team. Best case, nine and eight. Worst case, seven and ten. Ben Standing next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. 
Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. This segment of the podcast presented by Window Nation. Window Nation has a halftime show going on. What does that mean? It means you can score new windows from Window Nation for half the price. Buy two, get two free. You're only paying half price on the windows, and you don't have to pay anything with no interest until the year 2025. If you've been thinking about new windows because you want to lower your energy bills or raise the value of your home, Please give Window Nation the first shot. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Uh, call them at 866-90-NATION. Go to windownation.com. Mention my name. There's no risk. They'll give you a free estimate, and then you can take that estimate and do with it what you choose. Shop it around. You're not going to find a better group to work with, with a better product, um, or for a better deal right now. Buy two, get two free, no limit, no down payment, no payments, no interest until the year 2025, 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. Uh, let's bring Ben Standig from The Athletic onto the show. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Standig. Listen to his podcast, Standig Room Only, um, and subscribe to The Athletic. It's totally worth it uh, just to get Ben's coverage and his prolific writing um, as the beat reporter for The Athletic covering the Washington Commanders. On this best case, worst case Commanders record uh, day, Ben will give us uh, his uh, ceiling and floor coming up here um, uh, in a few minutes. But I don't think you and I have talked since the Ravens preseason game. Uh, and I wanted to get your thoughts on their cut down to 53 because I thought there was a big surprise. Uh, were there any surprises for you? Um, I guess, I mean, I was surprised that they cut Danny Johnson and Corn Elder, not because, look, I think both of them were had not secured a roster spot, but just the fact that they were these veterans and they replaced them with, you know, two two kids basically who have no experience. So that for for a unit that like kind of needs some help immediately, that that was a little surprising. Um, I'm trying to even remember now what what the, what else uh, happened. I I don't think I don't know if anything else is jumping out of me as being overly surprising. I mean, I think the thing is in general. We talked for months about how the depth of linebacker and cornerback was very questionable, and they seemingly were doing nothing about it. And now we get all the way to the finish line, and we're like, yeah, yeah, we agree. We're going to change up a lot of stuff here. And I thought that was both interesting but also like kind of frustrating that this seems so obvious. And I know there's like salary reasons why you do certain things. If you have veterans on the roster for week one, their salary becomes guaranteed, et cetera. And that may have been a factor in like the Johnson Elder thing, but at the same time, you, you, the goal is to try to win. Ron Rivera seems like he's in a, you know, in a desperate mode, but like you know, there's urgency. So uh, stuff like that has sort of baffled me. But what was your surprise one? Uh, Danny Johnson was the biggest surprise to me when I saw his name on the cut list. I was like, wow. I mean, I thought that you know it was Benjamin St. Juice. 
you know, who obviously if he's healthy, he's going to be their nickel corner. But they really have liked Danny Johnson. They played him a lot last year. They played him, you know, the, the, he was running at times the, the, this summer, as you know, you know, with the first team and and he was out there a lot. I was I was that was the one that that surprised me again. The bigger conversation to me, um, and I know that you and, and all the guys, you know, you deal with the day to day and 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 the roster moves. But you know, will William Jackson, Benjamin St. Juice, and Kendall Fuller be good enough, along with Bobby McCain and Cam and Cameron Curl? We'll, we'll get to, to to Curl here in a moment. But um, you know, the the uh, the backups to the backups are uh, something that we end up you know getting knee deep in, but ultimately it's going to be those front line guys that tell the tale on on the season. I just was surprised because I thought they liked him. You know, he's one of those players that I I've known that they've liked, and I was surprised to see him on the cut list. That's all. Um, I mean, I think Danny Johnson to me is sort of the epitome of my general the way I look at some of these things. You know, in twenty twenty or in terms of roster building, in 2020, now he, of course, was a holdover from the previous regime, but in 2020, he's on the team for the most part, plays at zero defensive snaps. Okay, fine. Special teams guy, you need to, fine. The next year, he's also not playing on defense until, I think it was the Green Bay game midway through the year, William Jackson's out, Danny Johnson has to play, and does some, does some pretty decent things, and he's able to stay on the field for the most part in a reserve role the rest of the year. But, Based on those two years, he's clearly not viewed as really part of the rotation, except that this year he was essentially the fourth guy all camp. Right. Whenever any, whenever anybody missed a day of practice, he was the one filling in. Now, he obviously struggled mightily in the preseason games. I thought he was okay in practices. But that, to me, is sort of like when we discuss like the lack of depth. Like That's like, I'm like, wait a minute. This guy, he didn't play two years ago at all and barely did last year until you had no choice. He's your fourth corner? And, like, ah, that, that to me was sort of the confusing part. And we talk about the top three. Look, I think St. Juice is pretty interesting. Well, I'm not ready to pencil him in and say he's a, a go-to guy. You know, he's not only is he switching positions to compete to be a slot corner, he basically didn't play last year for the most part right. because of the concussion. So, I, 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 to me, that's still a very big question at that position when you have your entire reserve now are second year players and rookies that that's that's gonna be really interesting you um had the news i think on friday about cam curls thumb injury uh we i guess we'll learn definitively what the injury was and how long he'll miss if any time on wednesday but do you have kind of a gut feel as to where this is headed i really don't so yeah so the thumb injury I was able to say that, you know, with, with some certainty. Beyond that, it's a little confusing. I mean, I, I heard a little bit about possibly having surgery. I'm not sure if he did or if it was just a consideration. Um, either way, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, we see this all the time with, like, linemen where they just put some big cast on their, on their hand and just got a big club and kind of move forward. I don't necessarily know that's an easy thing for uh, a defensive back to do, but, you know, it, it's conceivable he wouldn't miss – ton of time but I really don't know we'll have to get more from Rivera he's not gonna he doesn't have to reveal any type of injury updates until Wednesday when the official injury report starts to come out so we may not hear anything uh, before that but uh, yeah I mean you know for a team that ignoring the pre-existing injuries that they had coming into camp you know they largely were okay you know some guys missed some days but in terms of like ramping up to the season they're okay and now in the last 
you know, week or so, we obviously have the very unfortunate Brian Robinson situation. And he was, to me, going to be a, a very, very key piece because of what he meant, not just as an individual, but as the type of offense they want to run, have more ball control, have a guy that can you know be consistent between the tackles. He's now out at least four games. And Cam Pearl, you know, I think the secondary has been pretty good all summer, but he is the, the, the real chess piece. He is the guy that Del Rio can move into the box. He can play in, in the back end. He can play some slot corner. Like, he's the guy with the breakout potential that could be all over the place. And now, at least perhaps, he's out some, to some degree. I don't, you know, again, maybe he doesn't miss any time, but there's at least that's up in the air. And that's, that, that's such a, a bummer that these things are happening for these guys right now. Is Derek Forrest the replacement for Cam Curl if Curl's out? Um, you would think so. Um, you know, obviously, the <clears throat> we, we talk about the Buffalo nickel over and over again. Um, Cam Curl essentially was playing that role, um, and Derek Forrest was, like, when they wanted a third safety, he's been the guy coming coming out onto the field and playing combination of up and back, but a little more back with Cam Curl more towards the box. Um, so I think that would be the case. My only wonder would be, you know, depending on, you know, do, do they want, if, you know, if they want some more coverage help, maybe Jeremy Reeves sneaks out there. And I think Jeremy Reeves also is making some good plays around the line of scrimmage, but in general, Derek Forrest has looked like the third safety. So, yes, I would assume so. Um, do you think Logan Thomas has a chance of playing on Sunday? Um, I mean, obviously we would all like to have seen him have a little more contact than he has. So, it's a tough call. He, you know, he was ramping up more and more throughout practices. Now, of course, we've reached a point uh, starting last week where we don't get to see anything really anymore. So, um, you know, we're, we're done we're done with that um, going forward. So I won't be able to say, hey, you know, he's done this, that, or the other. But, you know, in general, I think he's made some good strides. And clearly they need need the help at that position because their top three guys have all been banged up. I guess my one hesitation is this regime seems to be very conservative when it comes to injuries, um, which is reasonable. But, like, you know, it, it, you know in terms of – uh, playing, you know, getting guys back on the field, that they don't seem to be the, the type of group that says, I just rub some dirt on it, let's go. So that's my hesitancy there. But I do think Logan Thomas made some pretty good strides over the last few weeks, so it wouldn't stun me if he was able to go. You think Chase Young's out for just four games, or it ends up being longer than that? Uh, I'd guess longer. I mean, I you know, we'll go back to when Rivera first told us that <laughs> Chase Young would at least be missing – Sometime to start the year, he initially sort of referenced the pup list, and he said that he thought the pup list was six games, which it, which it right. used to be, but now it's four. So the fact that he said that, you know, immediately had you thinking, all right, this is probably going to be at a minimum the four and maybe the six. And I, when you look at the schedule, right, week five is a regular Sunday, but week six is the Thursday against the Bears. So, you know, if you're not back for week five, you're probably also missing week six. So my guess would be he'll probably miss at least all those games. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. I know a lot of people on Twitter were, were speculating with a video of Chase Young at the Ohio State game walking onto the field. And in my timeline, people are arguing over whether he's limping or what's going on there. And, uh, you know, again, the, the conservative nature of this regime in terms of injuries would lead me to think that he probably is going to miss more than four. But, you know, at a minimum, we know it's that much. All right, so I talked about this on my podcast on Friday or Saturday, whenever it was. Um, 
just I thought the comments from Ron Rivera about Antonio Gibson in the wake of of Brian Robinson Jr. going on the the list that means he's out for four games were interesting because it led me to believe that Jonathan Williams could potentially end up being the Brian Robinson Jr. replacement against Jacksonville and maybe here early in the season as their first down thumper um, and that it might not be Gibson. What do you think? I think that's a pretty good read. Um, you know, I, I, I keep saying this every time I, I'm doing an interview now, so I don't want to try to sound like I'm like, look at me, but, you know, going way back to before the draft, like I was talking about these guys are going to look to add a legit running back, not just like take some seventh round flyer, but like add somebody because I don't think they definitively viewed Gibson as a guy who was a consistent chain mover. That best stretch of last year was to me Gibson's best work of the year that that four game winning streak yeah he was a fit, effective he was efficient they had a lot of ball control that kept the defense fresh and i think ron rivera looked at that and thought that's what we need to do and robinson just drafting robinson epitomized that but that said this isn't just about an individual talent this is about a philosophy i think the question is how long is robinson actually out for right we, we don't know I, I wouldn't even want to begin to, to to guess he's out at least the four games if he were to be out longer right Maybe they have to rethink what they're doing. Just view that Antonio Gibson is the best talent they have, and we've just got to get him the ball. But if it's going to be more of a Robinson will be back in a few weeks, and we have this plan, and we don't want to deviate, then yeah, I think Williams is a guy that um, should get some work in that capacity. I wouldn't think he would be the leading uh, ball carrier in terms of touches, but I absolutely think that that's what they're looking to do. And frankly, he's looked pretty good to me all summer. That if they hadn't drafted Robinson, I think Williams would have had some kind of a role in, in the same way. So, yeah, I, I think to me they leave they leave it in the Gibson as the, you know, get him the ball in space rather than try to drive him up the middle a ton. But at the same point, I would think his touches are going to go up now, you know, based on what we were all thinking of a couple weeks ago with Robinson out. You wrote about Curtis Samuel in your recent um, story on The Athletic, uh, in The Athletic. Uh, you know, it was only – three weeks ago, three and a half weeks ago, where, you know, he was hit and miss on practice and there were more concerns about him. But since then, it's been pretty smooth. Is he 100% and ready? Uh, and are they excited about him? Yeah, I, I, I'm hesitant to say 100% because obviously with him, it feels like it's a, you know, uh, you know, wrapping plastic situation, or bubble wrap, I should say, situation um, at all times, but yeah, he, he has been practicing. He, he does, he, he is feeling pretty good about himself. Um, I think they're feeling pretty good about him. You know, we saw, you know, even with preseason with limited game planning or not, no game planning, you know, Carson Wentz was looking his way a decent amount. <clears throat> he was working out of the slot primarily in, uh, in the preseason games. I think that's a pretty interesting deal because out of the slot in his last year at Carolina in the post Rivera regime, he was highly effective in that role, yet, yet Washington staff has largely used him on the outside. But with McLaurin and Dotson, they can clearly use Samuel inside. And I think, based on what we saw in Carolina his that last year, that's the best way to use him. So, you know, I, I think Curtis Samuel could be poised for a pretty good year. But at the same time, you know, every time he he, he cuts on a dime or, you know, you know, takes a certain kind of hit, you know, the soft uh, tissue injury concern is going to probably exist and that's what'll be interesting is you know can they nurse him all the way through a year 
without without him being a constant injury report presence or even missing games. I can't sit here and say that. But right now, I think everybody's pretty happy, and that was sort of the gist of the story that Curtis Samuel knows last year was a mess and he was in a bad spot mentally because of it, but he's back to being his outgoing self now, and he's feeling really good about things. Does Ron Rivera need a winning season to be back as the head coach in 2023? Um, I don't know that he needs a winning season, right? It just sort of depends on how things go. I think he needs a good season from Carson Wentz to avoid issues, right? Like if Carson Wentz shines, but the defense is still a mess, right? I don't know. You could like hypothetically get rid of the defensive coordinator, keep Rivera and say, well, you know, there's some positives here. The Wentz trade was good, et cetera, and go that way. I think if it's like, you know, an absolute disaster of a season where, where they have no shots in playoffs and we're talking the draft starting in like November, you know, yeah. then I think things could be different. I think, of course, you know, we're also waiting here for the deposition to come out from Dan Snyder in Congress. And, you know, we don't know what shoe is going to drop on that end to the degree that Dan Snyder is focused on other things, maybe gives Rivera. Um, more leeway than you would think if they have three consecutive losing seasons. So I don't think he has to have a winning record. I would just recommend he does that. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I'm going to stick with what I have been saying for a while now, and that is I just don't think he'll get fired before the end of his contract. I just don't think the Snyders are going to do that. They have um, – this is an odd circumstance coming off all of what they're, they've been coming off of here over the last couple of years, and – I mean, my God, they have hammered home the message of being the most diverse and inclusive organization in all of sports to the point where I don't know that he's fireable in many ways. Um, and by the way, there's an expense to firing him uh, early. I, I, I could see Ron Rivera retiring early if things really don't go well and they fall apart. But I'll tell you this, Ben, he for him, right now, what we do know about Ron Rivera players like him. He's well-respected as a leader uh, and as a voice, um, but you know, he's 14 and 19. And if you go 7 and 10 again, and you're sitting there at the end of this year, 21 and 29, um, and three straight losing seasons, and that would be, you know, three winning seasons in his last 12 or whatever as a head coach, or whatever it would be at that point, Man, they're going to be at that point very few people who believe in Ron Rivera, the coach, anymore. They may believe in him as a person and as a leader and as a mentor to young men um, and as a responsible and empathetic voice uh, in an organization that, that didn't have many of them for so many years. But at the end of the day, if he's sitting there with three straight losing seasons and they're not a contender this year... Uh, there's going to be th- those of us, and I put myself into that category, who have believed in Ron Rivera, the coach, not as an elite coach, but as you know, a solid head coach in this league. Um, the you know, maybe we'll, we'll we'll identify the personnel part of his responsibilities and say he's got to remove himself from that. Um, but I, I think that that's really, and and you're right, he's tied to Wentz. They are tied together. And if Wentz isn't good, and then they won't have a good season. And if he is good, then they'll have, you know, they should have a competitive season, and people will think, um, you know, uh, that there's still a chance. But I think there's a lot at stake for him this year in terms of the way he's viewed as an NFL coach. 
Yeah, and um, you know, sort of to your point, like <clears throat> there is the view of Ron Rivera, the leader, the person, and there's Ron Rivera, the coach, in, in the um, NFL agent survey that I had last week on the Athletic. The, the second part was just about the Commanders, and there were questions about you know, does Dan Snyder's uh, Dan Snyderness impact have what you tell clients about going to Washington and things like that, and we can get more to that if we want, but like in terms of the Ron Rivera aspect of that is for a lot of agents is very key that they say that the owner, obviously that's, a, that's, a, that's an important component, but that they're more worried about what do you make of the guy who's running the day-to-day operations. And in that respect, Ron Rivera is viewed very highly. Yes. He is considered one of the most popular individuals clearly in, in the sport, which is different than saying, I didn't have people tell me, wow, we're, t- we're looking at Vince Lombardi here. Um, but in terms of the, the man, if you're, you're going to feel comfortable putting your client with that guy and that you're going to feel good about that, I think we've seen that, right? I don't think there's yes. a team that has crazy knuckleheads or anything. Uh, you know, it does seem like there's a different deal. You know, the fact that McLaurin and John Allen are sort of the, the poster child right now for, for the roster, I think says a lot. Obviously, they're very good players, and both of them obviously were acquired before he even got here. But you know that that's where they're at. They're, it's not the you know the, the way it was before. Uh, obviously, where you had some more dice here, situation. So, um, yeah, there, there's reason to be hopeful with, with Rivera. But yeah, that's there's the person, the leader, and then there's the coach. And these things do feel like they're kind of separate for the most part. Ben's uh, annual survey um, of NFL agents uh, that I don't know how many years in a row you've done this, but it's so excellent. And this is. I mean, another reason to, to subscribe to The Athletic and read Ben, but there was a lot on Washington and Snyder, as he mentioned, but I want to just read real quickly the quotes about Ron Rivera um, because that, you know, Ben said, uh, you know, that the take on him as a coach is different than the take on him as a person, which is, you know, around the league, he is definitely a highly respected guy. Here are three quotes. Quote, Ron is well-respected. Rivera is a guy that players absolutely love. Close quote. Second quote. Quote, I think Ron Rivera's reputation speaks for itself. Close quote. Third quote. Quote, Ron Rivera is a tremendous leader. Close quote. From agents. Um, I would, you know, if you want to net out this stuff on Snyder uh, real quickly, um, have at it. Uh, I mean, I read through your entire story. It's a, it's a great job. How many agents do you actually interview for this survey? Uh, this year I had 26. 26 uh, NFL agents. So the take on Snyder netting it out was what? Um, so the, the, the question, as I said, was what does the Snyder's – you know, constant headlines, negative headlines, affect what you tell clients about coming here. And I think the basic net is agents view players in two different sections. The vast majority of the league has no, you know, they're young guys. They don't have a ton of options. The middle class in this league is fading. So you have to, you ignore a lot of that stuff and, and, and focus on the money. And even some people who have bigger name clients said the same thing. But on the other end, guys who have options, and in this past year, sort of your Russell Wilson level people, right there, we know they were looking for that, are going to take a not a long look at coming here because of, of all that. Because if you do have other options, why put yourself in the situation of having to answer questions or, or just be in that, in that atmosphere of, of the deal? So I think, like I said, on the one hand, the Dan Snyder aspect is not as big of a deal for the majority of players. Money talks, and if they're willing to pay the most, basically, then 
great that that'll work. But you know, if, if you're talking the true franchise changers, those people in general seem to be more you know unwilling to even really think about it too much. And look, you know, look again, look at the quarterback situation. Right. When people say that, why did they go get Carson Wentz? Well, they could trade for him. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I think that had as much to do with it as anything. That's right. Because I don't know who else they were going to get to sign here, um, or you know, and some guys like you know maybe weren't even willing to to do a trade here, right? So you know, I think I think that's a that's all that's a factor with uh, Snyder. Yeah, there's one quote in here from an agent who says, with respect to your question about how Dan Snyder's off the field matters affect how you present Washington to clients. Um, he said, absolutely it does. One of the things that agents probably look a, a lot more than the general public when they're looking at where they want their players to sign is ownership. You want them to be in a place where they take care of their own and there's not a lot of drama. Obviously, that that ownership group is just disaster after disaster after disaster, and there's one common denominator, the owner. Um, so... Uh, you know, they've talked about cleaning up that building. The cleanup has to start with new ownership. Until that happens, you're putting Band-Aids on it. You can put Band-Aids all on it all you want, but if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck. Um, but, yeah, to your point, you know, your, your, your big takeaway was when players don't have many options, they'll take the money no matter where it is and where it's coming from. But players with options – um, are more likely to steer clear here. I actually thought some of what you wrote and or what you had from agents on Carson Wentz was the most compelling part of the story. Um, and, uh, you know, the net of it is there was a, a, a lot of mixed, but a lot of agent, uh, you know, understanding of what's happened in the last two years, and it wasn't overly positive. No, it it, it it wasn't. And, you know, I tried in this case. I didn't want to just be like, give me your view of Carson Wentz as pure speculation. I said, look, I presume you've had clients that have played with him in, in, in Philly or Indy, or, you know, you're talking to the people in those buildings at a minimum. What's your view? Based on that, tell me your view. And, yeah, there were a lot of negative, uh, a, a lot of negativity around Wentz. I mean, to be honest, like, <clears throat> in the main part of the survey, I basically listed, if you, for those who didn't see it, I list the question and then have the quotes below without really any uh, interaction from me right. beyond that. <laughs> right. In this, in, in this case, I felt compelled to write it up more because I wanted to help balance it out because some of the quotes are pretty rough. I didn't even include some of the ones I just thought were sort of over the top because sometimes Why? I feel like it's just people piling on. Really? Well, I decided... Well, one, I mean, there's 26 people talking to me, right? I can't include everything. Um, so there's that. But, like, some of them I just thought were a bit much. I, I, I tried to go with the ones that felt the most, you know, were, were more than one person was kind of saying. Well, let me read more, one of them. Thing. Let me read one of them sure. real quickly so people who are listening to this have a sense of what some of the agents said about Carson Wentz. Um, Ben's question was, you've got clients who've played with Wentz. What's your sense of the quarterback at this point in his career and Washington's decision to acquire him? One agent said, quote, guys that played with him that I represent did not like him. They just thought that his personality was very standoffish. He rubbed a lot of players the wrong way. Now, that could change in Washington. I don't know him personally, but the things I've heard from players were really surprising. Never, never really heard players trash a quarterback like that before, close quote. Um, again, look, this may change, and all the things we're hearing from all of his teammates is that he's making maybe unique efforts for him 
to be more of – uh, of, of a guy that's around, that's that's less standoffish, that doesn't rub players the wrong way. And maybe, you know, at his age, maybe he's learned from the last two experiences and this is going to be a total resuscitation to his career. You're just, you know, asking these agents what their clients have said about playing with them. Um, but anyway, uh, did you have anything else on that on once? Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> part of the reason why I wanted to try to write it, write it out as opposed to just putting the quotes is, you know, I, I, th- I think the majority of the quotes had probably more of a, a negative slant. Uh, but the interactions I've had, I mean, one, I spoke with Carson Wentz the other day, and I'll have a story about him up this week. Hopefully people can check out. Um, I-, I found him to be pretty normal and nice and hard to see the, the, other, the other side. You talk to people in and around this team, everybody seems to say the same thing. But I've also talked to people who've covered Carson Wentz in his previous spots or have been with those teams. And it's a lot of like, well, good luck with that kind of vibe. So it's very hard to kind of figure out exactly right now what to make of it. But I think the key for me is nothing's happened yet, right? There hasn't been a single game played of consequence. And if, 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 the, if the issue is you know, people talk about selfishness or, um, you know, I think one of the better quotes in there about Wentz was, you know, he needs to look at the situation for these two last two teams and say, how did I, how am I in this spot? What did I do, if anything, to contribute to this situation? If he can take ownership of his own flaws or his own issues, then that can go a long way. And I feel like we're seeing a guy who's trying to do some of that when right. you hear how the players talk about him, but the games haven't happened yet. And if, and if, and if the issue is he doesn't take ownership of his issues, even the after games when things go wrong, then maybe we have concerns. And that's where I'm sort of willing to give benefit of the doubt while not not forgetting what a litany of people have said That's right. about their own experiences. Uh, we've seen losing um, end up re- being a much more revealing of true feelings around here, and we'll see what happens. I mean, I, obviously, I do think, you know, with all of this said and all of this understood about his previous two stints, he still is physically an upgrade over what they've had here uh, since Kirk Cousins. All right, I want to finish up with this. Um, maybe later in the week uh, before um, the Jacksonville game, probably on radio uh, with Ben. Ben will uh, be with me on radio as our Washington football team insider all year long again. Um, but I want your best case record and your worst case record right now. Yeah, I mean, I think best case is like 10 and 7. You know, I agree. Carson Wentz is clearly a physical upgrade. His, his you know, We've talked a ton about the inaccuracies in camp, but the, the, the good throws are pretty spectacular. And if the defense, look, I mean, the defense can't be worse than it was last year, at least statistically. So if the defense can get the middle of the pack, you know, I, I think there's both of those changes could be enough to to, to, to get you up to 10 wins now. Injury, you know, we're just going to assume injuries are really reasonable, right? Obviously, that's the game changer. I think on the flip side, though, you know, we're looking at a defense that's still in the, in the preseason was struggling significantly to uh, get off the field on third down. We, we don't know how long Chase Young will be out. We don't know how long Brian Robinson will be out. Um, and the Carson Wentz scenario obviously has not gone well the last couple of years, even though I mean the Colts did finish with a winning record last year. But, you know, the, it obviously there was, there was enough uh, – negativity for them to do what they did. So, uh, you know, I think on the flip side, I mean, I don't know if they can, you know, lose more than or, or, or not win at least six. And, and by the way, the, on the upside, the schedule being what it is, maybe the biggest factor at all. This year they're not facing, a, you know, a ton of 
all-star quarterbacks. It's kind of Aaron Rodgers, Dak Prescott, and then figure it out from there. So the schedule works to their benefit to the point that I don't know if they can win less than six, but if everything goes wrong, that would be sort of my floor, I think. Uh, we're pretty much on the mark um, in agreement. All right, thanks. Uh, at Ben Standing on Twitter, subscribe to The Athletic, listen to his podcast, Standing Room Only. I will talk to you later in the week. I appreciate it, as always. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. To send us to overtime. Yeah, that was an unbelievable finish to a crazy uh, game last night, uh, which, in my opinion, uh, the team that missed the extra point there, LSU, was not the better team. Florida State was clearly the better team start to finish, but still um, a missed extra point, a blocked extra point, and uh, a 24-23 Florida State win. One more game in the first full college football weekend of the year, and that is Clemson and Georgia Tech. Tonight, joining us right now is my good friend Tim Murray. Tim is the co-host with Sean King on Vizen's primetime, now 6 to 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern. They've moved him into a more more of a hot spot, I would assume, right? This is a I, when, when you go from super late night on the East Coast to six to nine, you know, while all the games are going on, that is that's a promotion, correct or not? Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah, no, we're we're fired up. Uh, it's been uh, one week uh, in the books and many more to go. Um, yeah, but you know, it was, it was a fun time slot. You know, being in the late night, you know, kind of reacting as games are going on. But now the opportunity, obviously, on Mondays and Thursdays to get two-plus hours of preview of Thursday night football, Monday night football. Uh, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting, obviously, you know, afternoon drive out where we live, too. So any of our you know, West Coast affiliates, whatnot, so we're in that drive time slot. But, no, very excited uh, about the new time slot. And it's, uh, it's been going well so far. And, you know, uh, coming off of, of this weekend, couldn't ask for, for much more. Um, and honestly, a phenomenal first weekend. You know, on Saturday in that early window, the App State-North Carolina game, which we'll get yeah. to, um, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm, like you, I'm pumped up for the first, you know, college football Saturday. You know, obviously gambling is a part of it. Um, but the... Um, Usually week one, it's what's great about it is it's football, and it's football from 12 noon until after midnight on a Saturday. But usually you don't end up with great games or, you know, memorable games, but we had several of them. I mean, let's, let's just start with last night because that's fresh on everybody's mind. Did you agree with me that Florida State was was I I know that a lot of people liked Florida State to be a much better team. I thought they were the much better team for you know fifty eight of the sixty minutes last night. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I really do. Um, and it would have been I don't want to say tragic, but it would have been unfortunate uh, for Florida State to lose that game. I don't know. And Greg McElroy, I, I like Greg McElroy a lot. I'm curious your thoughts as an analyst. I know. You know, people are giving him crap for saying that, 
he should have that LSU should have let them score down there. But I, I don't know why you run a pitch play on the two yard line. It just it made no sense to me. Uh, but all all in all, you know, I, I was impressed by Florida State. We'll see. They, you know, I, I am curious though, Kevin, because when we have these island games on these Sunday nights, sometimes we get a little too over excited, you know, saying Florida State is back, and I think I saw one of their players say that. You know, remember 2016, Notre Dame and Texas played that epic overtime game, and both of those teams had losing records. So right. uh, we'll see what happens. But I think Florida State, I thought I was really impressed by Jordan Travis. Uh, he's kind of had really up and down impressed. On there. And I, I, his mobility was really solid. Um, you know, I, I thought he, had a, he did a really good job, and, and people need to recognize, like, LSU, I don't think he's expected to do much this year, maybe have a 500 record, go to a bowl game. But what their strength is, is their defensive line. And I thought for the most part, uh, you know, Florida State's O-line, which is kind of a hodgepodge of transfers and, and whatnot, I thought they held up pretty decently. They, they have some playmakers out there. Uh, so I think Florida State's going to be an interesting you know, team to keep an eye on. Uh, obviously, they ran the ball really well in week zero against Duquesne, but you know, take that for what, it, for what you will. Uh, but all in all, yeah, I, I, was, I came away much more impressed with Florida State. Uh, LSU certainly has some things to figure out. I was never a huge Jaden Daniels fan at, at Arizona State. Uh, he certainly has the mobility. And uh, we'll see, you know, this day and age, Kevin, um, you know, players have a lot of power. And uh, Kayshawn Booty, who is uh, an All-American wide receiver, wasn't really utilized all that much last night. Wasn't and happy about it either. And he's gone on social media and he's scrubbed his social media clean of anything LSU. So that's always uh, an interesting sign. Seriously, after one game? Yep, yep. Oh, my God. You know, somebody needs to get with these young people and say, this is not what the NFL's looking for, uh, my friend. Um, so uh, I want to circle back to your McElroy thing here in a moment. Uh, but but for those that didn't see the game last night or didn't watch a lot of college football, that's what we're going to talk about here with Tim, okay? Um, because Who Tim, are those people? I don't want to be friends well, with them. I, you know, it's funny because uh, <laughs> I, um, I was having this conversation actually last night with, with Van Pelt, and he went to the Maryland game on Saturday, and I said it was an embarrassing crowd. I, I go, you know, it's really remarkable to me. I mean, one of the most unbelievable achievements is Mike Loxley's recruiting record at Maryland because uh-huh. the, the shots of that stadium, that in UCLA Stadium uh, in their game against Bowling Green, now that was an 11.30 a.m. start in 105-degree deg- record heat uh, out in L.A. But still, we know that when UCLA, not a lot's expected, although Stanford Steve picked them to be a Final Four team on the show on Friday um, as the fourth team after, after Ohio State, uh, Alabama, in Georgia, uh, but um, I the fact that Mike Loxley can get the talent that he's getting to Maryland NFL talent year in and year out when you had a shot of the stadium going around on social media where I, I doubt there were 5,000 people in the stadium in that one given shot. Now, that was probably in the second half, and the student section was kind of full to be, uh, begin with. And look, I'm being hypocritical here because I didn't go to the game. And as an alum, <laughs> I used to go to a lot of Maryland games. But, you know, a Buffalo on a hot Saturday, early start with all the other games that were on, uh, you know, my preference is to be – watching you know college football in general i watched the maryland game start to finish and i'm going to go to the smu game in a couple of weeks but anyway that aside i don't even know where i'm going with this um 
it was really kind of an exciting overall weekend. There were so many moments, but those that didn't watch the game last night, LSU botched two punt returns, fumbled two punt returns, this freshman um, neighbors. They missed two kicks, missed had a, a field goal blocked, and had the PAT with no time left on the clock to force overtime blocked at the end of the game, which is why they lost 24-23 instead of seeing an overtime game. Florida State uh, had the ball, could have put the game away uh, after the last fumbled punt, they were third and goal at the one-yard line at LSU's one-yard line with a minute 20 to go, up seven. Worst case is you're going to kick a chip shot field goal to go up 10, game over. And they pitched the ball to the running back who botched it, and LSU recovered at the one-yard line, and LSU went 99 yards in a minute and 10 seconds with with one timeout left at that point, I think did they have one time? I think it was one timeout left, and then missed the extra point. It was incredible drama, and then there was a lot of drama about a clock issue, inbounds knee versus out of bounds knee after a first down. Anyway, it was it was really a, a compelling game and finish for the most part. I, I think the worst take in the world, Tim, and I'm curious as to what you think was what I listened to when I turned on Greenberg with Feinbaum this morning on ESPN. And Feinbaum was screaming, $10 million, and that's what you get? A guy that won't go for two when it's the obvious decision because you've got all the talent, you've got all the momentum? And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's a debatable question at that point going for two in the win rather than going to overtime. I, I, I'm not a big Feinbaum fan, um, to be honest with you, but that's beside the point. It, it just I, 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 That take, which I saw much of after the game, after they had the extra point blocked, I did consider and was sitting there discussing with my son, would you go for two, would you go for two? And to me, it was very debatable in the moment. What did you think? Well, first off, Feinbaum has historically – disliked Brian Kelly and he said a couple years ago he was like Brian Kelly's a bad guy and then the re- the rebuttal was well have you ever met him he said no so he's he's kind of always been an anti BK guy uh not that I'm the biggest fan but uh well you are a Notre Dame guy yeah I am but I mean I look if people ask me I, I'm very grateful for the years I mean Brian Kelly people need to remember what Notre Dame was before yeah. he got there right. and what they are now yeah. they're a perennial top 10 team because of Brian Kelly and maybe he couldn't take him over the top and the, his exit wasn't ideal but hey uh you know that's that's college athletics nowadays uh as for the two point conversion attempt no I would have kicked the extra point because you know I, I know that when you go into um you know, overtime it is becoming a crapshoot, and now especially with the rules being what they are, where you only get two possessions now from the 25, and then you start the two-point conversions. You know, it it, it becomes more of you know a, a coin toss. That being said, you know, if I have the best, I think the best unit on the field last night was the LSU defensive line. So if I could have forced overtime, I would have happily you know lined them up and see what we can do. Uh, from the 25-yard line. So, yeah, it's really easy for anybody to go on Twitter or, or television now and say, oh, they made the wrong decision. I mean, how often do you have a an extra point blocked? The ironic part, Kevin, though, uh, is that the special teams for LSU, as you mentioned, were such a disaster 
the only coach, only one coach, Polian. went with Brian Kelly. Polian. From LS. Yep, and it was Brian Polian. Yeah. He was the special teams coordinator, uh, and they had two muff punts and two field goals, as you mentioned, or one extra point, one field goal block. The, yeah, the interesting part is there are a couple coaches that left that Notre Dame fans are like, yeah, we're good. And I think Notre Dame ultimately probably got an upgrade in Brian Mason coming over from Cincinnati for Brian Polian. Uh, so we'll see. But, uh, yeah, I, I probably would have kicked an extra point there. Um, you know, I, I agreed with the decision. If anyone watched the North Carolina-Appalachian State game, I love the decision there uh, by App State to go for two. Uh, in I, that di- game, I didn't. I was laying a point and a half. <laughs> so I did not like the decision. I had App State laying one and a half. Um, but no, no, no. You're, you're In that particular spot, that wasn't State, a bad call. I had App State on the money line. So yeah. that, was, uh, that was a roller coaster of emotions week one. I think the best tweet following the game last night was actually from, from one RG3 who got rave reviews for the Michigan-Colorado State call on Saturday. I didn't watch much of that game. But I've said all along that I think RG3 is really good good um, as an analyst um, and entertaining. Um, But he tweeted out a picture of Brian Kelly on the sideline and he wrote, Brian Kelly thinking, I didn't change my accent for this. (laughs) Which was a great tweet. Um, And it was just a fascinating end to a game. And yeah, I didn't have a problem with them kicking. I mean, it's, you know, it's 97%. One one thing about two-point conversions that people tend to kind of forget they are across the board in in terms of just average of conversions. It's a less than 50-50 deal, okay? It's it's like 48 point something percent. And then context is everything, you know, at that point. They had just driven at 99 yards, and there was like a 15, a 10-minute delay before their yeah. touchdown pass. So any momentum, m- momentum that they may have had was somewhat um, – uh, diminished by the big delay over the clock issue. Anyway, real quickly on McElroy. So what were people saying about him? So I, I commended McElroy. I, I've always been a big Greg McElroy fan. I think he speaks his mind. He tells the truth. Obviously, he's got credibility because he won a national championship at Alabama. Uh, but he was very critical of the play call to throw a pitch on the one-yard line. He's like, what are you doing? Just hand the ball off. There's no reason. You're up seven. You could salt this thing away. So I tweeted that out, and people got on me because McElroy, I guess, had said that LSU was doing, uh, making a mistake not letting Florida State just automatically score, uh, which, which is what he, would have, he said they should have done. So people were critical of that. But all in all, I, I just think Greg McElroy, he knows the game. He does his homework, and I, I think he does a really good job. He does a you know, radio show in Birmingham. Uh, so, yeah, he's just a guy that I, I – I, I think knows the sport uh, incredibly well, and I think ESPN is utilizing him quite a bit because he's really good at what he does. So I, it's funny because I, I'm not a Tessator fan. Uh, I'm just I'm, Yo, I'm just not a big Tessator fan with anything he's ever done. To me, he's a Thursday night whack. You know Nevada, you know San Diego State um, uh, uh, play-by-play guy. That that's been my thing all along. I thought that it was a disaster um, with him on Monday Night Football. Um, so I was listening listening to the two of them call a game, and you know I've listened to McElroy before, and I I think he's really smart. I think he really knows the game, and I think he explains it very well. 
Um, I also think he's fearless. Like he will, he will criticize players, um, you know, as an analyst and, and, you know, people that do what we do for a living. I love guys that aren't afraid to be constructively critical, you know, even though some of those guys are people that, you know, he knows and, um, you know, and, and he's probably, you know, family friends with in, in a lot of these cases, especially when he's doing SEC games. The one thing that I would say, because I, I, when you brought it up, I didn't realize there was criticism of him last night. Um, I thought that he was trying too hard at times to be really, really like there is there's a way you can say things and you get your point across. I thought he hammered home the point so much that he was there was a sense that I felt like he was impressed with himself doing it. But that aside, I do when he said at 24-17, let him score, I you're really hoping that you can stop them and somehow, and I know it's a short field goal, but the odds are probably better that somehow you're they're going to miss a field goal than you're going to score two touchdowns when you've only generated 17 points in total. And remember, the second touchdown is going to have to be after a recovered onside kick. So the actual – now, if you're down one, of course you let him score. You know, it's the Carolina re- return of, of the onside kick situation the other day. Let him score. App State was still trying to tackle the dude. Um, but uh, in that particular situation, it's like, you know, I, I, the chances of recovering an onside kick in this day and age after you've gone – 90 you know it's you know 80 75 yards after a kickoff out of the end zone you've used all your timeouts it's a score two it's you know it's pretty remote um I'm not sure which is a better odds uh, uh situation at that point um recovering an onside kick and scoring two touchdowns or hoping that you get a stop and they miss a field goal um it's it's pretty bleak. Now the pitch is a dangerous play. I had no problem with them trying to score a touchdown on third and goal and running the ball because they'd run the ball all night, but a pitch straight back. And by the way, it was a quick pitch and a weird angled pitch. Um, that, that probably was not the brightest thing. Anyway, wild game last night. Um, let's just talk about the weekend as a whole. Give me the team so far in week one that you were most impressed with. Oh, Georgia. I mean, Georgia was unbelievable. And, you know, we, we had this debate on our show, uh, my partner Sean King and I, and, you know, I said that Georgia was my third best team entering the year, and he had his reservations because they lost 15 players to the NFL. And when I told him, I said, look, they've been recruiting at Alabama levels. And I didn't expect him to win by 46, Kevin, but I was blown away at how well they played in that game. Uh, I mean, to go out and beat Oregon, who's got talent, and I think still has an outside chance to win the, the Pac-12. I wouldn't be stunned if they did. But I think when you think about the level of competition, uh, how much they had lost, their defensive coordinator is gone, and to go out and just absolutely obliterate them. And there were just different parts of that game where you saw you know, Jalen Carter blowing up offensive linemen on Oregon and getting into the backfield. You know, Stetson Bennett played really well. Really too. well. So, um, you know, he. I would say Georgia as a whole, and then I was blown away by Anthony Richardson. You know, the quarterback from Florida, um, you know, he, he was really, really dynamic. And you had heard last year, and if you watched SEC football, you saw glimpses, but he never could kind of put it all together. But I thought some of his playmaking capabilities, the two-point conversion where he jumped in the air, broke a tackle, and 
you know, was able to uh, to get the the two, the two pointer. So I think individually, Anthony Richardson uh, for Florida really blew me away, and I'm curious to see how he goes. I hope it's not a situation, Kevin, where he kind of gets overhyped and people are saying he's going to win the Heisman. Let's pump the brakes a bit. Uh, but he was fantastic in that upset win over Utah, and uh, boy, is that detrimental for the Pac-12 uh, when Oregon loses by 46 in a showcase game, and then Utah as a favorite goes on the road as a top-10 team and loses to a expected, you know, mediocre SEC team. Uh, but to me, the the two most impressive performances was Georgia as a unit and Anthony Richardson as a as an individual. Uh, well, you and I, um, you know, uh, mediocre minds think alike. I think the best start-to-finish game of the weekend, and it was the game I was most interested in going in, was, was Utah and Florida. And I thought the quarterback play on both sides, I thought Cam Rising was amazing for, for Utah. And the fact that he threw a pick there at the end was shocking to me because I thought Utah was going in for the win and the cover, by the way. And I had Florida um, plus the number. Um, I thought Anthony Richardson I – I thought their quarterback play – Overall, all weekend long, I mean, there were so many outstanding quarterbacks. I'll give you one right now that's a little bit off the radar because they lost the game, but I was impressed with them as a team. I thought Ben Bryant was outstanding at Cincinnati down at Arkansas. And I think that he actually really looks like he – and by the way, K.J. Jefferson, the Arkansas quarterback, was great too when he was cramping up, you know, during the game. That game really was misleading in terms of the the score. Cincinnati missed two field goals. They had a lot of penalties that really hurt, a couple of very questionable penalties. Um, They got the push if you bought the half point to plus seven. But I thought the quarterbacking in that game, I thought the kid May from North Carolina um, in – and what the craziest game other than last night's game of the weekend was outstanding. Um, there was quarterback play all weekend long, but Anthony Richardson, I I knew, you know, watching him last year, like you said, that there was, you know, some excitement around this kid. In one game in watching him, and I don't know where he was projected before Saturday, but he, after that game, he, to me, he's a definite first-round quarterback selection in the NFL draft next year. He, he is today's NFL quarterback. He's got the arm. He's 6'4 and 225, 230. He's got incredible ability to make people miss as a runner. He's, he's fast. Um, he, by the way, he's got a quick release. Uh, that, that game start to finish was so good for a first game of the year. And you knew that this was, you know, in the swamp Saturday night, Utah had that incredible bowl game against Ohio state. Um, they're so well coached, so well coached. Um, he does such a great job and it's Napier's first game, uh, in in Gainesville. That game was so good in Richardson and rising, but Richardson to me, I mean, he's. I'm. I'm assuming after this weekend, and maybe it was the case before this weekend, but really, what we've heard mostly, right, is is obviously C.J. Stroud, who I did not think played well, um, and uh, and 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 Young, and to a, to a lesser degree, Levis uh, at Kentucky. Richardson's a top half of the league for uh, top half of the first round pick right now, based on what I saw Saturday night. He certainly has the talent, uh, that, that's for sure. And, yeah, if he could put it together, you know, they got a big one this weekend taking on Kentucky. Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky's got some, you know, uh, I don't know if Rodriguez, I don't think he's going to play one of their top players, their running back. He had a, a off-season issues. They get a DUI. 
uh, that's something to keep an eye on there. But, yeah, Florida's really impressive. And I imagine you want to get to the Ohio State-Notre Dame game. You know, I, I think one of the biggest overreactions, Kevin, is that Ohio State's offense is, you know, not as good as, as we expected. I, 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 don't, I don't agree. I, I think Notre Dame had a really good game plan. And when push came to shove, they made some big plays. They had a couple big drives. Uh, you know, I think Notre Dame has a lot of questions offensively, but you know, it's it's kind of funny where we've become <laughs> as a as a college football, uh, you know, fandom. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, people said, "Well, what the hell happened with Ohio State? They beat the number five team in the country by 11." Right. Yeah. You know, like, and, by the way, that's and, that's what Ryan know, Day said too afterwards. Yeah. So, like, I, I, yeah, there were some issues there, but they were trailing at the half and they shut out Notre Dame in the second half. Notre Dame, I think, has some serious questions offensively, which I think yes. most people knew about. Uh, but defensively, this is one of the better defenses in the country, in my opinion. You know, with the front, I mean, they have a, a first-round pick in Isaiah Foskey, who for the most part I thought Ohio State kind of controlled. They've got veteran linebackers. Brandon Joseph is a borderline first-round pick. He was an All-American at Northwestern two years ago at the safety position, number 16. Uh, Cam Hart, number five, who is uh, a good counsel kid, uh, I thought had some ups and downs. I thought they took advantage of him a little bit, too, uh, did Ohio State. So all in all, I mean, Jackson Smith and Jigba played like one series. I mean, this is a guy that is a bona fide, you know, first-round pick, and he was he was hurt. So I, I think the overreactions on Ohio State not being as good as we expected are a little much. And I actually think that if their defense has figured it out with Jim Knowles as their defensive coordinator – you know, that, that was their issue last year. The, the offense will come. I think the defense, if it's as good as it, it looked on Saturday night, Ohio State's the real deal. I loved Notre Dame defensively on Saturday night. They were so disciplined. They tackled so well in space in particular. Um, and I'm really rooting for Marcus Freeman. Uh, and... I think they made a big mistake, though, on the go-ahead touchdown pass. I think it was the first time they had they Double. sent everybody. Yep. They went zero. Yeah. They went zero coverage blitz. They had been. They had essentially, and it was um, well put by uh, by Herb Street um, during the game. Right, Herb Street did that game. Uh, yep. Herb Street said they're doing to Ohio State and Stroud what a lot of teams did to Mahomes last year. They're playing too deep. They're playing deep cover two. They're just they're 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 saying you can move the football, but you're going to have to make one good decision after another and it's going to take you a while. You're not getting the big strike against us. And by the way, it takes a good defensive team and a good tackling team to be able to to pull that off and do it but by the way in getting them off the field and forcing Ohio State to punt as much as as they did in the first half but on that touchdown pass that gave him the lead it's third and 11 and they came with everybody for the first time all night and I was like oh my god because Stroud would have taken the check down and they would have been kicking a field goal there I, I thought that um it's funny we'll see what happens during the course of this year I, I'm I'm a believer after weekend one, and and I'm not, I don't want to overreact. And I agree with you on Ohio State. They'll still bl- they're still going to hang sixty three on three or four teams this year. All right, uh, but I I'm wondering if like this Stroud Young Heisman you know uh, deal, and and by the way, first quarterback taken debate all year long is going to just end up including more quarterbacks like Anthony Richardson. 
um, by the time we get to October and November, and certainly by the time we get to bowl season, because Richardson, to me, looks like more of what you're looking for in an NFL quarterback today. Now, I don't know anything about him personally. You know, all of the due diligence stuff, who knows? Um, and, you know, everything that's said about Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud, we've learned a lot more about them than we have Richardson. But Richardson looks to me physically every bit of a, a potential NFL star quarterback as Stroud or Young. You know, St- Stanford Steve pointed out to me on Friday – Bryce Young, because he was at you know he he was at the the uh, the championship game, and he said standing on the field, there's no way that that kid's six feet. He's five nine or five. He's like he's five ten or five eleven. Now that doesn't seem to matter as much in football anymore. Um, but anyway, uh, I I uh, I just hate. I, I was I, r- rooting. I was rooting for your squad in my. It's many people in my life will say my 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 closet uh, favorite team. Uh, the, 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 the Irish, but I really thought that they had, um, a hell of a game plan defensively. I did too. And it's funny. I tweeted out the same thing. Uh, as soon as that play happened, uh, you know, I said, look, hindsight's 20, 20 or Steve Spurrier would say 50, 50, <laughs> but you know, to drop, uh, and it was a delayed safety blitz too. They didn't even get to like the line of scrimmage and, right. and CJ Stroud, his biggest strength is, is he gets the ball out quick, you know? And I thought the game plan for Notre Dame, I mean, the first half, they couldn't have asked for more. They had one drive that was bad. They kind of picked on Cam Hart. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing for Notre Dame moving forward, and, and, and look, I, I'm pretty realistic. You know, I think this is a 9-3 and three football team with some landmines out there. Um, you know, a team like UNC on the road in a couple of weeks, are they going to be able to score enough against that uh, UNC team? I mean, their defense, North Carolina's defense, is absolutely god-awful. I mean, Florida A&M, who got held to three points uh, last night against Jackson State, was moving the ball up and down on UNC. So uh, we'll see. But, you know, there, there's some tricky games there for Notre Dame. But I, I think overall uh, I came away pretty encouraged. And I, and I don't have any – worries really right now about Ohio State if anything I think that defense is going to make them better I mean at the end of the day Kevin people have to remember we'll see I mean, about them defensively front. Tim we'll see because Notre they Dame three, is... they have three five stars they yeah. have three five stars up front they were blowing up Notre Dame's offensive line now remember Notre Dame's yes. all-american guard was out Jared Patterson due to injury and, and they were they, they were they were limited offensively with with the quarterback playing his first be, game yeah yeah, and they will be. I think they'll get better as the year goes on. And, you know, they play Marshall this weekend, so we'll, we'll see how that game, you know, plays out in a little more comfortable situation there. But, yeah, I, I, like you said, I, I was very impressed by the defensive scheme of Notre Dame. You know, I thought they put together a really good game plan, recognizing that they didn't have the same athletes as, as Ohio State. And, and sometimes you, you, you fall into a trap where you think that, oh, you know, we're, we're as talented as them. No, Notre Dame even said as much, I think, pregame said you know they have elite players all over the field you know the thing that people don't recognize too is that Travion Henderson and uh and the other running back for Ohio State Mayan yeah he he was great they were really good I mean their run game was was really solid so Ohio State can can beat you many ways not just throwing it with CJ Stroud all right let's just real quickly because I'm gonna we're gonna end with Tim giving me his best case worst case on this best case worst case uh show uh for the uh commanders this year but we haven't really talked about the Carolina App State game one of the all-time crazy games 
um, more than 1,200 yards in the game, 62 points scored in the fourth quarter. Appalachian State uh, scored 40, 40, 4-0 points in the fourth quarter and lost the game. Uh, They scored six touchdowns in a quarter, in a quarter, and lost the game. It's one of the more... I mean, you you get this in college football. You know, you get these sixty something to sixty, you know, fifty something games. This was sixty three, sixty one, Carolina. Um, but I'm watching this game. I don't know if you were watching it as it was happening. I was because oh, yeah. I because I had app I, I I had App State, and I you know even at forty nine thirty five, I'm like, if they get two touchdowns, just please don't go for two to try to win it. We'll get to overtime and maybe we can maybe we can pull it out. But you know, down 56-49, they score um and they went for the two. Uh and there were when they went for the two, there were 28 seconds left in the game. There was still like a full game left to be played over the final 28 seconds. This game didn't even go to overtime and there were 62 points scored in the fourth quarter. Um so they they go for two, and you know it was a shame because the quarterback missed the two point conversion before to a wide open receiver, and then tried to run it and got stopped. So they got stopped on back to back two point conversions. But they line up to kick an onside kick, and this was I, I don't even know who called the game, and I'm not going to call them out by name. But these were oh, two of the most awful. it was, so it was, it was they, these were two of the the most math challenged announcers as a pairing. I've ever heard. They had no idea what was going on in the game, the significance of various plays, the score, the clock. They didn't know anything. They were literally like two people brought in to call a game, and it was like the third time they had ever watched a football game. Um, when they kicked the onside kick, as Carolina, the only chance when you're up one, 56 to 55, that you could lose the game after you've recovered an onside kick with the other team having no timeouts is to actually return it for a touchdown to make the lead an eight-point lead, which, you know, with a two-point conversion, you can score, go for two, and you can tie the game on the other end. Well, they just didn't know what was going on, these poor guys. But uh, App State, by the way, didn't know what was going on because they were trying to tackle the guy rather than letting him score. Um, he scores, and then App State goes down in 28 seconds, or less than 28 seconds at that point, because after the return, I think there were like 19 seconds. In 19 seconds, um, with a big kickoff return, they score a touchdown to make it 63-61, and they went for the two, and they missed it. Um, and it was just – it was it was truly I, – I don't think – I don't know that we'll ever see what we saw – in a football game again, a team scoring six touchdowns in the fourth quarter, 40 points, and not winning the game. And they had a 14-point lead in the first half. So they had a 14-point lead in the first half, <laughs> scored 40 points in the fourth quarter, and somehow lost the game. No, They were also down 17, go, late in the, uh, down 20 going into the fourth quarter. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, it's funny because in that early window, Kevin – uh, I had South Dakota State plus the points, and then I had uh, Appalachian State. So to, I, I had a bet on a game that won 7-3 with two safeties and a field goal from <laughs> Iowa. Yeah. And then I had a bet on a game that had 124 combined points. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was wild. And you also negated the fact that the UNC uh, – the, the, the UNC uh, – uh, 
the UNC guy had a personal foul for uh, unsportsmanlike conduct. Right. So yeah. that, that allowed App State to get more. So, yeah, just an absolute wild game. And, uh, you know, we'll see. App State plays Texas A&M this week. Are they going to have anything left in the tank when they go uh, to College Station for that game? But, you know, how about the fact, Kevin, that these Power 5 teams are going on the road. All, all this know. happened in the state of Virginia, by the way, yeah. or Virginia and North Carolina. So you had on Friday night, I had Old Dominion. They get the win outright. Uh, then on Saturday, I had East Carolina catching – I think they closed like 12 and a half. Yeah, something like that. And they, they I mean, talked about another – Another college kicker situation. Kid misses the extra point, then misses a game-winning field goal attempt. So you feel for the East Carolina kicker, and then the North Carolina App State game. So, yeah, uh, it, it was. Uh, I mean, that was all in the in the early window there. And you know, North Carolina State and Utah; uh, those were two of the teams that got the most hype this preseason. It's week one, so we'll see. You know, Utah could come back and win the Pac-12, and NC State didn't lose, so they still have everything in front of them. But I, I was not buying this NC State hype. It was. To me, it got fully out of control. You know, Devin Leary to win the Heisman. You know, maybe they make the playoff. You know, everyone out there saying they're going to win the ACC. I, I do know, like da- I like Dave Dorn as a coach, though. I, I think that they've been a well-coached uh, team. No, they and they've got players. Yeah. You know, and they beat Clemson last year. I, I just I I'm not fully buying in, and they play tonight, obviously Clemson. Uh, and I, I laid. 10, uh, 13 in the first half of Clemson. Personally, I think Kevin this is the situation where Dabo is just enjoying all the criticism, and mm-hmm. he's going to come out and lay it on Georgia Tech tonight. That's a, that's my guess. Uh, that's my that's my bet. We'll see what happens. All right. Um, um, we we didn't even mention the UTSA Houston game, which I had. U- oh my god, U- that U- game was <laughs> tremendous. UTSA getting four. So, so once it went to the third overtime, uh, we were safe with the stupid two point conversion thing. By the way, yeah. another another situation of broadcasters. I don't know if you caught this, and I don't. You know, whatever. I mean, it, it's calling these games is challenging but he they went into the second overtime and houston goes for two and that broadcast goes wow this is a surprise i'm like no it's part of the rule yeah it's, now. it's the it, rule i know you have to go for two yeah. in the second overtime now right. that's the new rule you kick an extra point in week overtime one have to go for two in overtime two if you score a touchdown and then you go to the two-point conversions in overtime three but yeah it's funny uh utsa wasn't really on my radar and then i was watching your guy svp give out his winners and I'm like, oh my God, UTSA is only catching four against yeah. Houston. I'm like, yeah, I, that's, I had uh, them. That's, I had that's a, me and you. I had a three-five and one weekend with the smell test. The, the most painful loss was Bowling Green plus twenty three and a half. UCLA had a fourth and five at midfield with like two and a half minutes to go up twenty one, and they threw a bomb instead of punting it and, and scored a touchdown. So uh, that that one was painful. Um, Bowling Green was up seventeen seven in the game, and it, you know when you're getting twenty three and a half and they're up seventeen seven in the second quarter, you're pretty much feeling like that's going to be a lock. Um, uh, there. There were a couple of those that were painful this weekend. All right, and, but, I had uh, I'll, I'll give you this though. So I had yeah. a couple painful ones. I had Purdue catching three and a half. Uh, uh, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't play that. Yeah, I, I, I liked it, but I didn't play it. Running the ball, so that was a tough one. But I did. <laughs> Our buddy uh, Steve Sands and I were texting on Thursday night, and he said Central Michigan. I'm like, okay, and they I were getting them. their absolute horse yeah. blown off. And yeah, I had them. covered so. Sometimes it was, you it, it was sometimes fifty. You get a... It was fifty-one to fifteen, and that was my first pick of the year for the smell <laughs> test. And I and I just I did what I usually don't do. 
I just checked out to see how many people were just crushing me on Twitter. And there were a couple that were like, dude, you just have to stop. And so I just waited and waited. And, of course, I, I chalked it up as a loss. And they, they came back. They actually had the ball back down 14 with a chance to make it a seven-point game. Um, but anyway, uh, a great, a really phenomenal, exciting, wacky week one. And next week we get, you know, Alabama, Texas at noon. Um, and you already mentioned it. I can't wait. Uh, Kentucky, Florida, to me is the is the game. Might be the game of the day. Um, Florida's a four and wow. a half point favorite. Uh, they'll be ranked, obviously. They'll bust into the rankings this week. Um, but they're a four and a half point favorite. Um, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say for those. Uh, I mean, I'm on the West Coast, so I get to enjoy them more. So, but if you're a late night uh, Baylor BYU, Kevin, this might be the best. I know. Post-10 o'clock slate I've ever seen. So you got Baylor-BYU, which is two top 25 teams. Oregon State absolutely blew the doors on Boise State yeah. on Saturday night. And they play Fresno State. And I know you're, uh, our guy, Stanford Steve, loves him some Fresno yep. State. Jake Hayner's back as their quarterback. Yep. That game's at Fresno State. That's a pick em right now as, as time of recording. And then what's the late then, night? Yeah. What's the, the what's the, the real late night? There's tonight. Mississippi is, uh, State Arizona, or Mississippi? Arizona State at Mississippi. Or sorry, Mississippi State at Arizona. Oh. Arizona. Yeah, I know. Went Pulled to San Diego and State pull- and kicked San Diego State's ass. Yeah, I know. And Mississippi State smoked Memphis. So the late night slate that game starts at eleven o'clock Eastern. So yeah. uh, if, if you're a late nighter, yeah, uh, Saturday night's going to be wild. leading into the yeah. first NFL Sunday of the year. So give yes, me sir. give me your best case Commanders record, your worst case Washington record. Uh, I think best case they, they can win the the division. I, I really do. I, I think. You know, this team is, is upgraded on talent. Um, you know, obviously the, the loss of Brian Robinson is, is detrimental, but we'll see when he comes back. I mean, you know, all, all accounts, is, as your listeners and you know, I mean, it sounds like he's has a chance to play uh, sooner rather than later, so that's, that's exciting in that regard. Uh, but I, I think best case, Kevin, you know, you could be looking at an 11-win team for the first time since, what, 91? Yep. I mean, this team, I, I think, has the potential. You look at the division, it's not daunting. Um, so I think that's the best case. Uh, I wouldn't say the most realistic, but I would say best case would be 11 and six, and you win the division. Uh, worst case is you know seven and ten, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, you know Carson Wentz turns into be Carson Wentz, uh, you know like he was his last year in Philadelphia. Uh, maybe you get some injuries at the wide receiver position. Is you know Chase Young doesn't come back fully healthy or comes back later than expected. Uh, so I think there's a potential there, and that's a pretty wide variance. And you look at the the win total is is around eight eight and a half and I think that is you know what is to be expected you know you could be two two wins better than than what Vegas thinks or two wins worse so I would say best case eleven and six win the division worst case seven and ten and maybe even last place in the NFC at one Tim Murray on Twitter co-hosting V's and Lives primetime six to nine Eastern with Sean King the former Tampa Bay Bucks. Uh, quarterback, uh, thank you for doing this. We'll talk, uh, I'm sure, before uh, next weekend, uh, weekend number two, which uh, we didn't. I didn't even mention Tennessee and Pitt as a pretty good 3:30 game. Um, I'll talk to you. Thanks for revenge doing this. game. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no doubt, Kevin. Always a pleasure.
Tim Murray, everybody, one of my favorite people to have a conversation with about football, college football in particular. Thanks to Tim. Thanks to Ben. I'm going to leave you with kind of a Scott Van Pelt Sports Center, the best thing I saw today. This was the best thing I saw from over the weekend. Um, For those of you that are Foo Fighters fans, they had this benefit concert at Wembley over the weekend on Saturday for Taylor Hawkins, um, who passed away. Uh, tragically, um, a few months ago, and his 16-year-old son, Shane, uh, was on the drums for my favorite all-time Foo Fighters song, uh, My Hero. I'll leave you with that. Uh, if you haven't seen it, definitely um, you know, Google it and watch the performance by his son. It's an incredible uh, performance and really moving if uh, you're into them. Uh, all right, that's it. Back tomorrow with Tommy. Shane starts this song.